Hello, and welcome back to the Caliphs, the rise and fall of Arab power. My name is Zayd Wahab, and today we will discuss what is alleged to be the bloodiest conflict recorded in our histories. What started out as a slave uprising in Basra exploded into something even darker and more dangerous. The mayhem lasted for almost 15 years and brought truly unprecedented levels of ruination to the south of Iraq, effectively paralyzing the state. All this chaos was orchestrated by a sadistic conman who exploited the wrath of an enslaved underclass. Episode 74 The False Prophet of Basra Despite all the chaos of Al-Mu'tamid's long reign, picking today's topic out of the many available options was a no-brainer. I mainly rely on Al-Tabari's history for this show, and he arranges his material chronologically, using headlines for each group of narrations. A year can have any number of headlines, or even none at all, and each headline can range from several dozen pages to a single sentence. Throughout the 15-year span of the conflict, Al-Tabari has a little over 60 headlines, and 40 of them are about this rebellion. Al-Mas'udi has a lot to say about it too, making this the best documented war in the period we have covered. This conflict is normally referred to as the Zenj Rebellion. The term comes from the Persian Zanjabar which literally translates as Black Coast, a reference to East Africa. This Zanzibar isn't the bunch of islands off modern-day Tanzania, but the extended sub-Saharan coastline. Zenj refers to its natives, or more specifically in this context, to the enslaved labor the Caliphate imported from the region. While the etymology of the term Zenj is solidly ethnic, it has devolved into a racial expletive in modern Arabic, so I plan to avoid it and simply refer to the rebels as the rebels. Before they were rebels, though, these unfortunate souls were assigned the back-breaking work of reclaiming the marshlands around Basra. After clearing an area of any vegetation, they had to till its topsoil to reduce the salinity and dig canals to improve drainage. It's unclear when the practice of using slave labor for the job began. There are some mentions of bondage in the area that go back over a century, but nothing on the scale of what was going on in Basra during the anarchy. Much of the peasant population which lived and worked near the marshes abandoned their homes in those tumultuous years. The caliphate's new preference for tax farming compounded the issue. Now that a region's tax was prepaid, wealthy landowners had every incentive to go big. They sourced workers from abroad and scrimped on their upkeep to keep costs low. By the late 860s, 
There were thousands, perhaps tens of thousands, of enslaved East Africans toiling in terrible conditions outside Basra, where innumerable rivulets connected the waters of the Tigris and Euphrates on their way out to the Gulf. But our story begins a few years before that, in the early days of the anarchy, with a troublemaker who seems to have grasped the unique opportunity the absence of Abbasid overlordship presented. His name is given as Ali ibn Muhammad, and most narrations hurl abuse at the man in the same breath they use to introduce him. Sources concur that Ali ibn Muhammad was his real name, but there's no agreement on his lineage or even ethnicity. Some allege he had noble Arab roots, while others that he was a nobody from farther east. Realistically, there can be a little truth in both. He may have been the son of Arab immigrants to Iran. Ali consistently asserted that he descended from the Prophet Muhammad himself, through his daughter Fatima and Ali ibn Abi Talib. Such lofty lineage would make him a revered Hashemite, which is probably why Al-Yaqubi, whose history ends only a few years into today's subject, calls Ali's band of rebels Hashemite pretenders. The historian would not have made that error had he known more about Ali's unique M.O. He presented himself as a Hashemite not to agitate for the Hashemite cause, but to highlight a supposed blood connection to the Prophet. Then he would take things a step further, and insist to his followers that he was a regular recipient of otherworldly messages and commands. Ali's approach is very reminiscent of al-Mukhtar's brand of chosenness from all the way back in the second fitna. Both men used the Hashemite cause to pretend to personal divinity, albeit in different ways. Our conflict wasn't the first time Ali had tried to foment trouble by faking such credentials. Back in 863, he tried his luck in Bahrain. Things went his way for a few years, but he eventually made too many enemies and had to flee the region with a handful of die-hard supporters. In 867, he informed his followers that a thundering cloud sent by the Lord had ordered him to go to Basra. The cloud may have gotten mixed up. Basra had never been very hospitable to the Hashemites, and Ali's posse was promptly placed under arrest. He was transferred to Wasit, but somehow escaped to Baghdad en route, where he started with the whole shtick once again. This time, he told people that God was sending new revelations which appeared all over the city's walls, but they were detectable only by his eyes. Shockingly, the invisible words weren't a hit, and months later, Ali still had little to show for his efforts. Within a year or so, civil strife in Basra led to a mass jailbreak giving him a reason to return for his friends and family. So, in September 868, Ali went back to Basra, and after being shunned by its Arab population, he decided to try his luck with its enslaved folks instead. Many could not speak Arabic, but early adherents translated his promises to anyone who couldn't understand. His vision was one of uncompromising supremacy. Employing a hodgepodge of Hashemite and Karajite ideas, he pledged that God would reward his followers 
the only true Muslims in the Ummah, with divine favor and life, and heaven in the hereafter. Their only task was to fight tooth and nail against their oppressors, and to spare none but those who submitted and joined their ranks. The revolt started that same month. One narration in Al-Tabari claims that Ali had only a couple dozen followers when he first raided the extensive reclamation projects where other slaves were being kept. He gained 50 followers from the first one, 500 from the second, 150 from the third, and another 80 from the fourth. The accuracy of these numbers is beside the point. It's the lightning pace of the insurrection that we should take note of. In only a matter of days, it mushroomed to hundreds, then thousands of liberated men, alarming the residents of Basra and other nearby communities. They sent emissaries to Ali, offering five gold pieces for each slave he returned and a full amnesty for his own involvement in the affair. The offer was immediately rejected, though not without causing damage. It seems like the rebels were spooked at the possibility of being betrayed, because they began to agitate for action against their former masters. The thing about the marshes is that they were great for outlaws to hide in. The main reason the Basrans tried to treat with Adi was because it would have been impossible to hunt him and his supporters down in the thick swamplands they used for shelter. They'd already tried a couple times, but the patrols they sent were quickly and ruthlessly cut down. The terrain could not be accessed by cavalry or carriages, and its dense canopies of reed were perfect for ambushing unsuspecting enemies. The advantages the marshes offered were all defensive, so I figure the rebels must have been feeling trapped or desperate for them to suddenly decide to go on the attack. In late October of 869, mere weeks after Ali's arrival in Basra, his men prepared to move against the city. While it sounds like a dangerous and ill-advised decision, we can cite three factors that may have encouraged them to think it was a good idea. The first is the anarchy. Samarra couldn't possibly defend Basra, so it was up to the locals to fend for themselves. The second is that there was considerable civil strife in the city. The same conflict that had caused the jailbreak which had brought Ali back was still raging. And the internal division made Basra an easier target. Finally, the victories inflicted by the rebels against the patrols sent to fetch them must have given them the confidence and equipment they needed to take the fight to Basra next. If these three reasons did indeed feature in their calculus, then only the first of them was sound. The threat posed by the rebels united the factions of Basra in common cause, and the home field advantage changed things considerably. The rebels were swiftly rebuffed, and with such ferocity that most of them fled the scene altogether, with only 500 or so sticking with their leader throughout the fiasco. Buoyed by their triumph, the Basrans began to prepare for an attack of their own. They filled three barges with archers and positioned hundreds of men on either riverbank to accompany the convoy while it patrolled the marshes in search of scattered runaways. 
What the Basrins didn't know was that Ali ibn Muhammad was one step ahead of them. He'd spent the last couple of days rebuilding his forces, using the cover of the swamp to stay well out of sight. When Basra's citizen army emerged to hunt down the rebels, Ali made full use of the camouflage his environment afforded. His supporters ambushed the unsuspecting Basrans and massacred them almost to the last man, sinking their boats and drowning their archers. It was the first major victory of his campaign, and the last one we'll describe in this much detail. Otherwise, we'll be here all day. Upon hearing the shocking news of defeat, the people of Basra wrote to al-Muhtadi, begging for relief, and he sent a Turkish commander with a few hundred men. Over the next six months or so, they scored some minor victories whenever they chanced upon some rebels in the open. The cavalry was otherwise ill-suited for the job, and the commander withdrew back to the capital, a development that only emboldened the rebels. Around this time, the rebels began to work on their first settlement, deep within the impenetrable marshes. They would move it a couple times, but the fact that they bothered to establish a capital showed that they intended to be there for a while. They transparently named it Al-Mukhtar, the Chosen One. In June of 870, the month in which Al-Muhtadi was killed and replaced by Al-Mu'tamid, the rebels attacked the town of Al-Ubula, east of Basra. They won a decisive victory, and their merciless slaughter of its people spread terror in nearby settlements, leading them to submit to Ali without a fight. The rebels looted these towns, armed themselves with any gear they could get their hands on, and took all the wealth they could carry before retreating into the marshes for protection. A new Turkish commander arrived shortly afterwards, but like his predecessor, his victories were fleeting, and after a particularly nasty ambush, he was forced to return to Samarra with his tail between his legs. Although the rebels didn't hold any of the settlements they attacked, their fall cut Basra off from the east. This wouldn't have been a problem if Iraq was flourishing, as supplies could just come downriver from Baghdad. The imperial province was in shambles, however, and Basra relied on the province of Al-Ahwaz, or Khuzestan, for sustenance. Traders no longer frequented the area now that dangerous, bloodthirsty rebels were known to operate there. Effectively stranded, the Basrans first suffered shortages, then outright starvation. The city withered as people abandoned it in droves. After a year of precipitous decline, Ali thought it may finally be the right time to take on Basra again. His last defeat made him wary of attacking the city, so he sought allies and found them in the nomadic tribes of the Arabian Peninsula. These Bedouins were tempted by the riches a raid on the city could bring, so they agreed to join the rebels in their assault. In September 871, after performing their Friday prayers, the two forces fell upon Basra. The fighting lasted all weekend, but by Monday we find narrations relating gruesome tales of mass slaughter. 
Al-Mas'udi puts the number of casualties at 300,000. But he is quick to add that there was no real way of tallying the dead to prove any estimate. For once, he is the source with the lowest figures. The highest one I came across was 2.5 million, with most others close to a million. Modern estimates consider all of these to be exaggerations, speculating that the real number was probably somewhere in the tens of thousands. I'm focusing on the loss of life, but narrations make it clear that the horrors went beyond that. The whole city was torched, and while men were put to death, the women and children were taken into bondage. So many were enslaved that some rebels were rewarded with dozens of them to do with as they pleased. This disaster coincided with the arrival of the latest commander from Samarra. His forces quickly secured Basra and Al-Ubula as the two had already been abandoned by the rebels. When they went out into the swamp to look for survivors, they were immediately decimated in an ambush. The remnants returned to fortify Basra, and they wrote to Samarra describing the scale of the carnage and asking for reinforcements. Now that the anarchy was over, the big guns were coming out. In early 872, Palha advanced against the rebels at the head of a large host. He assigned the trusty Muflih as commander in charge and sent him to assault the rebel base in April, only for the imperial army to suffer a terrible defeat and for Muflih to take an arrow straight to the temple. Talha tried to tough it out, but malaria ravaged his troops, and by early summer he was compelled to withdraw to the fortified city of Wasit, just beyond the northmost edge of the Great Swamp. Having destroyed the caliphate's provincial capital and bested its top general, the rebels had nothing left to fear from the Abbasids. Talha's presence in Wasit meant that it was easier for them to expand east into Al-Ahwaz, and so they opened a new theater of war in that province. In 873, they raided its capital for the third time, but instead of retreating after their victory, this time they decided to occupy it. They assigned a governor and levied taxes and everything, transforming their rebellion into a state. The rebels held territory in Al-Ahwaz for multiple years, and the only setback they suffered was when Musa ibn Bugha managed to beat them out in the field in 874. He was placed in charge of the war effort against them after that, but it wasn't long before a more dangerous foe threatened the Abbasids, leaving the rebels to operate unchecked. The Safarids, our topic for next time, had succeeded in unseating the Tahirids, and were now heading west to Iraq. By 875, it was clear that this new power from Khurasan was too big for the caliphate to take on, and Samarra tried to negotiate instead. The arrival of the Safarids wasn't without consequence for the rebels. When the Safarids first tried to take them out, they were repaid with an especially deadly ambush. The situation grew very complicated in Al-Ahwaz over the next few years, especially as governors appointed to the province kept switching loyalties in hopes of becoming masters of the land themselves. They betrayed both the Abbasids and the Safarids, 
then the Bedouins betrayed the rebels, and so on. By late 875, the Safarids began gunning for the Caliphate, and with the two dynasties busy preparing for war, the rebels had free reign over Al-Ahwaz and Basra. So for clear and coherent reasons, the fortunes of the rebels mirrored those of the Safarids. In April 876, the Abbasids won a decisive victory against the Safarids just outside Baghdad, thwarting their invasion of Iraq. The only reason that victory didn't mark the turning point against the rebels as well was because the chief of the Safarids, Yaqub, remained so close to Iraq that he kept the Abbasids on the defensive. The rebels took advantage by raiding Wasit and extending their domain to its furthest. Three years later, in mid-879, Yaqub finally succumbed to a disease and died after refusing treatment. He'd come closer than anyone ever before him to bringing an end to the caliphate. As he only spoke a form of Farsi, Yaqub is hailed as the earliest reviver of Persian language and culture. He was only in his late thirties and was succeeded by his brother Amr. Yaqub's death allowed the Abbasids to finally shift their focus to the rebels, who were by now running amok dangerously close to Baghdad themselves. The commander in charge of the Caliphate's latest campaign against them was none other than Talha's son, Ahmad. It was the 22-year-old's first command, but he was well-suited for the commission. He hadn't grown up in some gilded palace, but by his father's side on the battlefield. This wasn't some vanity hire either. Musa ibn Bugha had been killed in action a year earlier, and Ahmad had proven to be a keen observer of military nature and strategy. In December 879, a little over a decade into Ali ibn Muhammad's rebellion, Talha reviewed his son's 10,000 troops and riverboat armada and sent them on their way to Wasit. Ahmad beat the rebels back methodically. Progress was slow, but consistent. He made sure he never gave his enemies the opportunity to ambush him, and his diligence paid off handsomely. His careful planning and attention to detail were exemplary, but the real genius of his approach became apparent after he captured one of the better-known rebel leaders. He pardoned the man on the condition that he don robes of honor and take a conspicuous position among his troops. Ahmad was the first Abbasid to offer the rebels a chance at redemption. Those who surrendered were looked after by the army in return for their help convincing others to do the same. This new policy sparked disarray in the rebel camp, as more and more of the rank and file chose to switch sides. One narration claims that Ali ibn Muhammad put his own son to death after rumors spread that he was corresponding with the caliphate. But despite these positive developments for the Abbasids, like I said, progress was slow. In October 880, Talha led his own five-figure army to support Ahmad's, and it was only then that the rebel presence around Wasit was totally eradicated. Thousands of women and children were freed as a result of their victories, 
an event jubilantly celebrated in narrations which refer to the Abbasid father and son as heroes. After finishing up in Wasit, Talha left the campaign in Iraq to his son and made his way to Al-Ahwaz. He faced very little resistance from the rebels in this eastern theater of war, as their leader had recalled all his forces to the safety of the marshes. By February 881, Talha's armies reunited with his son Ahmad's, confining Ali ibn Muhammad's movement to its point of origin. As the most senior officer around, Talha reassumed control of the entire war effort. His first move was to offer a general amnesty to all, including Ali ibn Muhammad himself. This was rejected out of hand, but it was still a good tactic as it led to divisions in the enemy camp. After some senior rebels switched sides, Ali ordered that others he was suspicious of be executed. Such an atmosphere of mistrust is hardly conducive to cooperation, let alone camaraderie. Following Ali's rejection of the Caliphate's offer of amnesty, Talha prepared for war. To say he played the long game would be an understatement. In order to destroy al-Mukhtara, he founded his own city across a nearby river. It started out as the base camp for his troops, but quickly gained a market and other civilian sectors. It even had a coin mint, underlying the fact that wars run on gold. From his painstaking approach, it is clear that Talha had a deep appreciation for how dangerous the marshes could be, especially the land surrounding the rebel capital of Al-Mukhtara. At the height of his campaign, Talha commanded 50,000 men, the largest Abbasid army since Al-Mu'tasim's days, way before the anarchy. Some sources allege that the rebels outnumbered the caliphate's forces. I'd be wary of trusting estimates for either side. After reading the various narrations, I can sum it up like this. The Abbasids were out in full force. But the rebels were far from overwhelmed and could still match them on the battlefield. Talha's strategy wasn't to attack al-Mukhtara, though. At least, not yet. He knew that his enemies would use their home field advantage to deadly effect. He needed to weaken them first, then slowly tighten the noose. To this end, he sought to blockade the rebel base and cut it off from receiving any supplies. The marshes had an abundance of fish and birds, but it wasn't enough to feed the tens of thousands of men now restricted within. They needed bread, grain, and other goods to survive. Talha's new city already prevented them from accessing their old routes to Al-Ahwaz, and the general ordered a fleet to patrol the coast to shut down any possibility of smuggling by sea. Finally, he established a market for Bedouins in Basra to encourage them to trade with the caliphate instead of the rebels. Within months, the rebels began to feel the sting of privation. Enough of them abandoned the movement for the Abbasid forces to finally breach al-Mukhtara in July 881. But the fighting was so fierce that they had to abandon their campaign and return to base. The war was still by no means over, but this tale is getting a little long for a story with such a predictable ending. Since the Abbasids were obviously going to win, 
I'll skip the details and only mention the two serious setbacks they faced instead. In December 882, during a glorious assault in which the Abbasids burned down the main mosque in Al-Mukhtara, Talha sustained a serious wound. He continued to exert himself until his condition became debilitating, bringing the campaign to a screeching halt. Then, a few months later, while he was still recovering, his brother, the Caliph, tried to play at political independence by making common cause with the governor of Egypt, Ahmad ibn Tulun. If this sounds innocuous, then let me assure you it could have been fatal for Talha if al-Mu'tamid had succeeded. Luckily for him, the governor of Mosul had his back. It's a story for another time. Just know that for the first six months of 883, Talha had every reason to abandon his campaign, but he persevered. This persistence paid off, and 883 would mark the end of the rebellion that had plagued the caliphate since al-Muhtadi's days. In May, a raid on the city liberated Ali ibn Muhammad's personal harem of more than a hundred women. In July, new blood joined the fight against him when Lu'lu', one of Ahmad ibn Tulun's generals, switched over to Talha's camp. His forces would become the spearhead of the final assault on al-Mukhtara, which took place in August. Ali ibn Muhammad was killed by one of Lu'lu's men, and his head was brought to Talha who immediately prostrated himself in gratitude to God and was promptly emulated by everyone else. The Abbasid general remained in the region for months, hunting down the rest of the rebels. It wasn't until November that his son Ahmad arrived in Baghdad with Ali's severed head for a triumphal parade. Thus ended the Zanj Rebellion. I'm glad we sidestepped the term. In doing so, we avoided the misconception that the rebels were entirely of East African origin. From the way their numbers swelled in the good years, it's clear that their ranks included all sorts of vagabonds and soldiers of fortune. Ali ibn Muhammad's heretical doctrine didn't play a big role in their motivations after all. Those centered around more worldly concerns. While the rebellion mostly took place after the end of the anarchy, it clearly owed its origins to that decade's pandemonium. Without it, Ali ibn Muhammad would never have survived his earliest attempts at instigating discord. Abbasid governors dealt efficiently with insurrections back before the 60s. There were other ways that the anarchy precipitated this mess. The dire financial situation in the capital allowed the rich to employ predatory tactics which would not have been allowed during days of wiser stewardship. There's no good slavery, but the industrial scale it reached around Basra during the anarchy was singularly cruel and without parallel. This rebellion is so well documented in our sources that it comes off like the biggest threat to the caliphate. While I don't want to downplay the danger it posed, the only legacy Ali ibn Muhammad's movement left after being extinguished was one of wide-scale devastation in the south of Iraq. I suppose another consequence was that it made heroes out of Talha and his son Ahmed, helping to justify their de facto usurpation of power from al-Mu'tamid. In any case, 
Yaqub Staffar and Ahmad ibn Tulun were ultimately far more consequential to history than Ali ibn Muhammad. So, if you were disappointed with how transitory today's subject turned out, I promise you won't be if you join me again, here on The Caliphs, The Rise and Fall of Arab Power.